You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. 2 Samuel 15 In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came in with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call to him. What town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfil a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living in Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with the Kerasites and Pelasites and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied from Gath marched before the king. The next reading is Uh, Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my energies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Thanks, Steph, for that Bible reading. Uh, Please do keep your Bibles open. And if you'd find it helpful, on the welcome card is an outline of my sermon for today. 
Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Psalms. We've looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and as I said, they're kind of like lenses through which we can read the rest of the Psalter. And so as we come to think about Psalm 3, you can be having in mind how does this teach us wisdom about how to, what, to live well in God's world, but also how does this show us the Messiah, that Jesus is God's promised King. So as we come to think about Psalm 3, let's pray and ask that God would be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Psalm 3, for this ancient poem uh, that King David wrote. We pray that you would uh, bless our time together in your word, that you would speak to us as a group but also individually so that we can know how to live well as your people. Amen. When you're attacked as a Christian, is it okay to be sad? Is it okay to feel hurt and just want to hide away? Is it okay to complain and express your pain? Many Christians would say no. And then if you do, it's actually a sign that you're sinning or perhaps you lack faith. You know, brother, you just need to turn the other cheek. Don't worry about it. Sister, turn that frown upside down. But there are many cries of lament in the Bible and Psalm 3 is one of them. To lament means to cry or mourn or express sorrow. And in fact, the laments are the most common type of psalm found in the Psalter. The book is filled with sadness. And this can trouble Christians because we're not always good at being sad. I mean, we're good at feeling sad, but we often think we have to cover it up. We think that... Being a Christian means we have to be smiling and laughing all the time, you know, cheerful and positive all the time. But the reality is life is not always hilarious and joyful, is it? Sometimes life sucks. Yep, I said it. Life sucks. Sometimes we feel down, sometimes we suffer and we struggle and sometimes we're even attacked by those around us. And the worst thing we can do as Christians is to act like it's a sin to be sad or a sin to feel attacked. This is why the Psalms are so valuable for us. You see, they show us that it's okay to be down. It's okay to admit that you feel threatened. It's okay to cry out to God for help. I've had some very intense times in my ministry over the years where I felt surrounded by criticism and opponents on every side. In my previous church there were issues with the local council. We rented a facility off them for our church services and there's just every now and then tensions from them. People had left the church because they didn't think that I taught the Bible properly. There were others who were in conflict with each other and were blaming me for making things worse between them. I was under great stress and I had this tendency to think that it was all my fault. And sometimes I felt like I just had to pretend that everything was okay. You just come along to church and smile and don't worry about it. Other times I felt like it was all on me to figure things out, that you had to keep it to myself, work it out. I couldn't ask God or other people for help. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt bad for struggling? Have you ever felt it's your own fault for not being able to cheerfully face opposition? There's something wrong with you. 
If you felt that way, then you need Psalm 3 just like I do. It's a great example of what to do when you feel attacked. When you feel that people are against you and they're trying to bring you down. The answer is to cry out and look to the Lord for deliverance. And we see this in the example of David the psalmist. The first thing we need to look at is verse 0. That's right, verse 0. I'm talking about the title of the psalm. It doesn't have a verse number, but it actually is still part of the Bible. See, many versions, translations of the Bible set these apart from the rest of the text. You know, they're in a different size or a different style of font. And so we can think they're just another editor's note put in there by the Bible translators. Like John 13 has the words, uh, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. That's a heading, a, a note from the translators. But these verses, these little headings in the Psalms are actually part of the Hebrew text that we have received and we should consider them to be biblical. The titles are important because they give directions on how to read and use each psalm. Not all of them have titles and not all of the titles are as useful as others but some of them can really help us to understand how we should approach them. For example, 73 of the 150 psalms are said to be of David. That's usually taken to mean that King David, the ruler of Israel, wrote these songs or poems. Now the phrase of David can mean by David or it can also mean like about David or it's for David, so maybe written by someone else but about him or in his voice. Some people think, well, David couldn't have possibly written that many psalms. Yet we know that David actually was an accomplished musician. You might know that as a young man he was employed by King Saul, the first king of Israel. He was employed to play the harp in the palace. David's beautiful music would soothe the troubled Saul. When Saul and his son Jonathan died, David composed a song of mourning and and he sang it. And listen to these verses from the Bible. 2 Chronicles 29 verse 30 says, King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed down and worshipped. Then Amos 6 verse 5 says, You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. David was a gifted, famous, prolific musician. And so we should have no problem accepting that he could have written many, many psalms. And so when we see a title like A Psalm of David, I actually think it's okay for us to picture this was written by the king of Israel, King David, around about 1000 BC in Israel. I think that's okay. And that can help us to set the context. Some of the titles go even a bit further in setting the context, describing events that led to the writing of the psalm. And that's what we see here in Psalm 3. There was a family dispute maybe a bit more than just a dispute, but there were some tensions going on between David and his son. Have a look at the title. A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. We had part of 2 Samuel chapter 15 read out before and it describes how David fled from Jerusalem where he was king. He fled from Jerusalem to escape his son Absalom who sought to overthrow his own father as king. 
Absalom plotted and conspired, much like the nations and rulers in Psalm 2, right? Because he wanted to throw off the chains and shackles of God's anointed one, the king of Israel. Absalom sent messengers throughout Israel to raise support for his rebellion. And so chapters 15 through to 17 describe how he and many leading officials of the nation plotted against David. And so this sets the tone for our psalm. David is literally attacked and harassed by thousands of people and so he cries out to God for help. This is why it's a lament psalm. David is having a difficult time and that's a bit of an understatement. In responding to this situation he shows us that when we feel attacked we should look to the Lord for deliverance. And so the main thing to see is that David confidently faced his foes. In verses 1 and 2 we learn that his foes threatened him but also his faith. Have a look in your Bibles. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. And Absalom had raised up an army against his own father. David's royal advisor, Ahithophel, has betrayed him and he tells Absalom to gather 12,000 men to hunt David down and kill him. David's foes are many. Many have risen up against him and also many are saying that God won't deliver him. In fact, there was this guy called Shimei, son of Gerah and he was a relative of King Saul and as David fled, this guy followed him, throwing stones at David, crying out, the Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. In other words, he's saying, God will not deliver you. David's foes are threatening his life, but they're also threatening his faith, his confidence in God. They want to convince him that God has abandoned him. And so what does David do in response to this? How does he deal with these threats, these attacks? He looks to the Lord to the God that he's in a covenant relationship with. Have a look at verses 3 and 4 in your Bibles. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. David says that the Lord is a shield around him. He, He offers protection. God stands between David and his enemies. And notice what David says down in verse 6. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. David doesn't fear that thousands might surround him because the Lord already surrounds him as a shield. There's no place that his foes can get him through to attack him. David also says that the Lord is his glory. That partly means that God is the one that David glorifies and puts his trust in but it's also that the Lord bestows glory upon David. It's the same thing as saying that God lifts up his head. It's about honour and dignity. The foes of David are attacking him in his character. They're cursing him and questioning whether God even loves him at all. But rather than boast about his own godliness or his integrity or his amazing harp skills, David looks to the Lord. 
God is the one who makes David special. And so he doesn't have to fear when people point out his legitimate weaknesses and failures. David hung his head low, but the Lord lifted his head up. In verse 4, David then says that he cries out aloud to the Lord and the Lord answers him from his holy mountain. David knows that God answers prayer. He knows that even though he's had to flee Jerusalem, God's holy hill, his holy mountain, he hasn't gone beyond God's reach. God's presence was thought to dwell in the great city in a special way, but David knows that wherever he is, God can still hear him and still answer. That's great faith, isn't it? In these verses, David doesn't look to himself or to his army. Instead, he looks to the Lord, who is his shield, his glory, the one who lifts his head, the one who answers prayer. Verses 5 to 8 then show us how David relies on the Lord for justice. He doesn't seek out vengeance. He doesn't stay up all night stressing about what will happen. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. David's enemies could very well be drawing up upon him. Some of his own men have already betrayed him back in Jerusalem. How does he know that the men in the camp are not going to betray him while he sleeps? But, But David doesn't fret, he doesn't stress, he trusts the Lord. And so he sleeps peacefully. He doesn't collapse from exhaustion. Instead, he chooses to lie down in faith and he sleeps like a baby. And then he wakes up the next day because he knows that it's because the Lord has sustained him. God is watching over him. This is great confidence. In the light of a new day, David turns his prayers now to the topic of justice. He calls for God to rise up and deliver him. Have a look at verse 7. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Now, this is a troubling verse, isn't it? Do you sense that? Does this feel a bit weird? This is probably the main reason why Psalm 3 is not found in church hymn books and contemporary song writers don't draw inspiration from Psalm 3 for church songs. We can be really troubled by David's plea that God would strike his enemies, that he would break their teeth. But you don't need to throw your Bibles out yet or kind of cross this verse out. Let's just think a bit about what's actually going on here. First of all, when David asks God to strike his enemies on the jaw, this is more about dishonouring them rather than just punching them in the face. Have a listen to Job 16 verse 10. You get the same word for strike and jaw being used. People open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. Instead of the word jaw, we have the word cheek. It's the same word in Hebrew. And in Job, striking on the cheek is very much about scorning someone, dishonouring them. And that fits perfectly with what's happening in Psalm 3. David's foes are cursing him. They're shaming him. They're they're trying to convince him that God has abandoned him. 
And so David looks to the Lord as the one who will give him glory, who will lift up his head. And in the process of honouring David, God is also dishonouring his enemies. He's showing them to be wrong, to be liars, to be traitors of the king. They're getting a good old slap on the face. The second phrase, break the teeth of the wicked. It sounds a bit harsher though, doesn't it? But again, I've got another verse for you, Psalm 58 verse 6, you can see on the screen there. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Psalm 58 is another psalm of David and he describes wicked people as being like lions with ferocious teeth. And so the way to disarm these ferocious enemies, these people, is to break their teeth. Often in the Bible, the enemies of God's people are portrayed as wild animals who encircle and attack the faithful. And so ultimately David is asking that God would disarm them, that he would defang his foes, that he would remove their power, their ability to harm him. And David then affirms that salvation comes from God. Have a look at verse 8. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Now we're not told in this psalm how deliverance came, you know, what it is that God did, but I can tell you what didn't happen. God didn't literally answer verse 7. It's not as if there was an angel that God sent down from heaven to Jerusalem. He's right, right, now which one of you is Absalom? Oh, there he is. He kind of rolls up his sleeves. Look here, son, I've got a message for you from the Lord. Smacks him in the face. Absalom's teeth come falling out. Right, job's done. Who's next? It's not how he answered it. But we do know as we read through 2 Samuel that God frustrated the advice of Ahithophel. Remember, he advised Absalom to gather 12,000 men to hunt down and kill David. Well, the Lord caused Absalom to ignore this advice. And so David actually had enough time then to mount his own attack. His army was able to defeat his son. It's clear that the way God answered verse 7 wasn't literal, but at the same time we don't want to downplay verse 7. Yes, it's not a plea that God would engage in acts of random violence, that we would hire him as our hitman to go beat up the people we don't like, but it is still a genuine call for decisive punishment and justice. So what are we meant to do with this? Is it actually okay for Christians to pray something like this? Or is this just a sign that you know, the Old Testament, times were barbaric then and we're kind of above that now. You know, this is of no use to us. There are four things we need to remember. The first is, this is Poetry. And we should expect poetry to have vivid and dramatic language. That's, that's how poetry works. Verse 7 is supposed to jump out at us and shock us. You know, even taken metaphorically, you know, the metaphorical image of God striking someone on the jaw to break their teeth is jarring and that's the point. Justice is painful. Justice comes at a cost. Secondly, we have to remember that David is the king of Israel and he's God's special anointed one. He had a special role and a purpose to play in God's plan for the world. And we saw that in Psalm 2, 
To attack God's anointed one is the same as attacking God. And so in a way, David's enemies are actually God's enemies. Thirdly, please notice that David doesn't take vengeance into his own hands. He cries out to God for justice and God will decide how to answer this prayer. And finally, number four, we sometimes forget that the reason why we as Christians are called to live at peace is not because God is necessarily a pacifist, but it's because God will win in the end. He's not going to win by sitting his enemies down with a cup of tea and having a good old chat and coming to an agreement with them. He, he will punish. There will be justice. But here's the thing, it's not our job to bring about that punishment. It's not our job to bring about that justice. We are to live in peace because judgment is in the hands of the Lord. I think that to try and ignore verses like this in the Bible is to actually diminish the justice of God. It's to downplay the seriousness of rebelling against our Creator. But it's also to rob God's people of the ability to honestly grapple with our own pain and frustration. Life is hard. We experience injustice and wrongdoing. Our hearts ache with the grief and misery that we experience. Our minds can grapple with conflicting realities, try to make sense of things. People oppose us, friends turn against us. It just builds and builds within us and we need a way to find relief. To say that we should just bottle it up and repress it and be good Christians, it's it's to deny the reality that we're suffering. It's to deny that God actually cares. To expect that we should never speak up leaves us feeling like we are the ones with the problem rather than those who are causing our pain. No, these verses are an essential part of building a more robust view of God's world and how we are to live as his people. Lamenting in the midst of suffering and calling out to God for justice is good and godly and biblical. Psalm 3 gives us permission to lament. Do you believe that? I don't see many of you nodding. Do you believe that? That that Psalm 3 actually gives us permission to lament. I think we need to consider how to do that well. It could actually be easy to jump from David's experience to ours and to say that whatever was true of David is also true of us and we just kind of a one-to-one connection here. But our deliverance is different to David's. See, we're not kings with political enemies that God promises to vanquish. The, The nature of our enemies can be more varied and complex. And so instead we need to consider first that the Lord delivers us through Jesus. Jesus is David's greatest son, the greatest anointed one and his life often reflected uh, or foreshadowed the words of David. When we remember that the Psalms have been carefully placed in order, it's no mistake that this Psalm comes as number three, we actually see something shocking happen between Psalm 2 and Psalm 3. Remember last week what we talked about? God's king will prevail. God has installed him on his holy mountain. God 
sort of laughs and mocks those who are trying to oppose the king because the king cannot be overcome and the, the nations need to submit or they'll be smashed to pieces. But then in Psalm 3 we have the exalted king fleeing from the mountain, fleeing from Jerusalem. David is suffering in exile. What's going on here? Well, this is the battle of Psalm 2. This is the raging going on. David did suffer, but ultimately he prevailed. Just like Jesus. Jesus did this on a much grander scale. If you've read the Gospel of Mark, Mark's biography about Jesus, you'll know that the high point is in chapter 8 where Peter finally confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He understood that he's the anointed one of Psalm 2. And then so Jesus tells Peter, yes, you're right, and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And is Peter happy about that? No. Peter gets upset, he starts to rebuke Jesus, like that's not what the king does, you're meant to be the conquering king installed on the mountain. The problem was Peter hadn't understood that Psalm 3 comes after Psalm 2. The confession of the exalted king is followed by the suffering of the king which is part of what leads to his exaltation. He needs to face the battles ahead as he goes through the darkest valley. The ultimate exaltation and victory of the Messiah only comes after the humiliation, suffering and shame of the Saviour. Just like David, Jesus looked to the Lord for deliverance. He looked to God to give him glory, to lift up his head. Jesus didn't just lay down to sleep though, did he? He laid down his life. He did this in confidence, trusting the Father. As Jesus went to the cross and died at the hands of sinful men, he he still knew that the Lord was his shield, that he could lay down his life, but that God would raise him up in the morning. God did do that. The Father lifted up his head and vindicated him. Jesus' enemies were silent. It's like they were slapped in the face. Satan's teeth were smashed so that he can no longer ensnare and devour God's people. Satan has been defanged. In the death of Jesus, we receive the shield that we need to protect us from our greatest enemies, from death, from sin, from Satan. And we now look to our Saviour as the one who will vindicate us. And so the Lord has sent deliverance and his name is Jesus. And so Psalm 3 shows us that Christians can confidently face their foes. Here's uh, this week's image. This is from Psalm 3. A picture of rest in the midst of surrounding threats. Now it's been exciting, I think it's been exciting to explore the historical background of Psalm 3 to see how these threads connect and we kind of, we get the, the narrative of David's experience but then we get his heart in Psalm 3, don't we? What was going on inside of him? But what's interesting is as we read through this psalm, this poem, we see that very little of the details actually come out. It was written in the midst of a specific situation, yet the psalm itself is general enough that we can take these words for ourselves and use them in our own situation. 
And it's not like you have to wait for that moment when you've got Absalom's army surrounding you and then I can use Psalm 3. It can be any type of foe. That's part of the beauty and the blessing of the Psalms. We can make these words our own. And so if you're finding yourself under attack, you can do as David did. You can lament, you can look and you can live. Let's look at those one at a time. In terms of lamenting, we learn from this psalm that suffering is expected for God's people. It's actually okay to admit that you're fearful, that you're sorrowful. It's okay to admit that you're hurting or struggling. We too can experience attacks from others just like David. It might be friends or family, it might be workmates, classmates, it might even be from other Christians. There might be a feeling of oppression we get when we just log on to social media and read posts. They may not be directly aimed at us but we still feel hurt, uncertain and oftentimes these attacks can undermine our faith. You you hear that little voice in your head that says God will not deliver you. We fear that, that we're too bad for God. We're too far gone. We fear that God has abandoned us. Maybe God's not real and it's just all a delusion. People can cause us to doubt and when the attack is constant, it takes its toll. And so it's okay to cry out to God to say, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Actually, I think this is where we need to pause for a moment and take notice of that odd little word that you might see in your printed Bibles. You may not see it on your phone, but... The printed Bible, there's a little footnote and there's this word Salah or Salah. I don't know how to say it exactly. I'm going to say Salah. It appears three times in the Hebrew of this psalm and nobody actually knows what it means which is why it doesn't get translated. That's how it is in Hebrew. It's most likely a musical term. Some Bible translations just ignore it altogether or others like ours put in a footnote so you can see that it's there but it's not in the text. Uh, it's most, some people think it's like a musical direction to like rise and so if this was to be used in temple worship, at that point the music or the singers of the psalm are supposed to get louder or increase in pitch. Other people think it means to pause, to take a break. Maybe there's a kind of a musical interlude. The singing stops and the instruments keep going. Unfortunately, when you start to look at all the different psalms and how the word salah is used, there's not kind of the consistency we would like. So that's part of the reason why it's hard to know what it actually means. It's unfortunate it's been relegated to the footnotes, but there you go. But I think in this psalm, we can actually use it. It can be useful for us. Because if you have a look, it appears three times. At the end of verse 2, the end of verse 4, and the end of verse 8. And in my mind, as someone who loves structure, that's pretty good. I, I can see how it breaks up the psalm into three units. And so I think we can actually use it as a prompt to pause. We get to the end of verse 2 and, and we pause and we just let those words sink in. But take a moment now to think about the areas in your life where you feel attacked, where your faith is being challenged. Let's just pause.
What do you do when you feel attacked? David's answer is to look. To look to the Lord, for he is the one who delivers you. That's what verses 3 and 4 teach us. You know, our honour can be stripped away, our integrity challenged, we feel shame and we feel guilt. People lie about us or even worse, they find out the truth about us. We hear them say, God will not deliver you and we believe it. We feel surrounded and threatened and small. But the answer is not to boost our own self-esteem, to not lift up our own heads. To, the answer is not to try to prove our worth or our value or our skills. Don't look within for your glory and honour. Look to God. He is the unshakable source of glory. He is the one who will lift up your head. He is the one who promises to raise you up on the last day and clothe you with glory and splendour. God is your shield. God is your glory. God is the lifter up of your head. He will hear you from his holy heaven no matter where you are on this earth. And so keep reading your Bible to see how it is that God has delivered his people and how he will deliver his people. Share your story with others. Listen to theirs. Encourage one another. You don't look to your enemies because when you focus on them, they grow beyond their real size. They tower over you. They terrorise you. Instead, look to God and your understanding, your vision, your picture of God will never be too big. It will always be smaller than God actually is. He's greater than we can imagine. Salah. Let's pause and let that sink in. Look to God. Finally, we are to live. Verses 5 to 8 remind us that God is the one who sustains our lives. You can confidently rest at night, no matter how terrible the day has been or how much you're dreading the morning. You can lie down and wake up because God will sustain you. God will vindicate you. God will judge those who deserve it. God will forgive whom he chooses and you'll rejoice in that too even when it's hard to. So live your life with confident trust in God. He delivers you and you will be blessed. It's not to say that you'll never be harmed, that you'll never suffer, you'll never struggle, you'll never wonder why it is that God allows this to happen, but there will be deliverance sooner or later in this life or the next. And so when you feel attacked, cry out and look to the Lord for deliverance. Remember verse 8. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. And his blessing truly is. Salah. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you that you hear us when we cry out to you. Please help us to resist the urge to lift our own heads up, to to make ourselves look big in the sight of others, to glorify ourselves. May we instead look to you as the one who is our shield the one who gives us glory, who honours us, who will deliver us. We thank you that you have done that most decisively in Jesus who has died on the cross in our place so that we would have our shame and guilt and burdens removed. And we pray that you would help us to face each day, whether we are facing foes or not, may we look forward in faith, knowing that one day you will judge, make the world perfect, that you will uh, glorify us, 
and that you'll be with us every day. Please help us to look to you and to live. Amen.